just joining us online, uh, if we have got children in the room who'd like to go to our children's ministry time, they can exit right out the back there. We got some wonderful people who would love to share the word of God with them at their age level, and they can be dismissed right out back there. I want to invite the rest of you to go ahead and find Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bibles. We're actually going to begin in verse 26 this morning, so Hebrews 10, 26, if you want to go ahead and start there. Uh, I mentioned this in my prayer, but this week I had the opportunity to go and take part in um, an EFCA ordination council. Um, now, because we are not officially, we, we voted to join the EFCA, but they haven't passed us through all their process on their end. Um, by the way, I don't anticipate any problems with that, just so you know, uh, in case that didn't sound like that. But um, but I was invited by Logan Murphy, who's the associate pastor at EFC of Mount Morris. Um, I, I was invited to come to his ordination council and sit on it. Now, based on the rules, I don't think I was allowed to talk. Um, I was there from 9 a.m. till 2 p.m. in a room. And your pastor stayed really quiet that whole time, which is something of a miracle in and of itself, right? Um, and so anyway, uh, it, was, it, was, it was really awesome. And just, I, I just wanted to bring you a, a, just another one of those, like sitting on that after we voted to join EFCA was incredible because I saw their process of how they ordain pastors. And let me just tell you, if there is a pastor and he is ordained as EFCA, you are guaranteed that not only does he believe everything in that statement of faith, which is still out there on the table, but he can defend it because he has to orally defend it in front of a group of his peers. And so let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you, you can, you can be assured of that. And so anyway, I just, that was a really, um, it was a really good experience for me. It was long and tiring and they didn't let us have lunch until two o'clock. So I told them I was sure they weren't Southern Baptist because when I was in the Southern Baptist church, there's no way we're waiting until two o'clock to have lunch. Uh, so, so it's like, I know y'all ain't Baptist, but anyway, uh, go ahead. As I said, open to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 26. Now, according to uh, our good friends at Britannica, um, there's a guy in history named William Wilberforce. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, but he was a British politician and a philanthropist who from 1787 was prominent in the struggle to abolish the slave trade and then to abolish slavery itself in British overseas possessions. His advocacy for abol ab abolition of the slave trade was driven by the fact that he'd become a Christian. And there was a movie made about him a few years back called Amazing Grace. Um, I own it, but I've never seen it uh, because I believe it's got a big scratch in the DVD. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, young William Wilberforce, when he was a young man, he was discouraged one night in the early 1790s after another defeat in his 10-year battle against the slave trade in England. He was tired and frustrated, and he opened his Bible, and he began to leaf through it, and a small piece of paper fell out and fluttered to the floor. It was a letter written by John Wesley shortly before his death. Wilberforce read it again. Unless the divine power has raised you up, 
I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the oppression of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. A message from John Wesley to young William Wilberforce, who was discouraged, who faced persecution, and was tempted to just give up instead to persevere. And John Wesley, who I will say I've got I've got theological beef with this guy, so don't use this as a ringing endorsement of him. Uh, but John Wesley knew a thing or two about perseverance. So here are some particular entries in John Wesley's diary. So I'm going to read to you now from his diary, which sounds really riveting, but, but hang with me, okay? This is from the diary of, uh, of John Wesley, who knew a thing or two about perseverance. Sunday, Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. I can identify, right? Sunday afternoon, May 5th, preached in St. John's, Deacons said, get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May 12th, preached in St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday morning, May 19th, preached in St. somebody else's. Deacons called special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May 19th, preached on street, kicked off street. Sunday morning, May 26th, preached in meadow. Chased out of meadow as bull was turned loose during service. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m., so Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening, June 2nd, afternoon, preached in a pasture, 10,000 people came out to hear me. Today we come to another difficult passage in Hebrews. It's why we study the whole counsel of God. We don't just pick and choose. When, when we look at Scripture, we take the things that are pleasant for us and the things that are difficult for us all together to, and because we understand and trust it to be God's word. And that's why me personally and our church uh, favor expository preaching. This simply means that we want to expose the meaning of the Bible and apply it to the lives of the people. Now in today's passage, we find both a solemn warning and an encouragement or an exhortation to persevere which is why I started out talking about perseverance. In today's passage, we find this solemn warning from the author who's writing to these Jewish believers, likely around Rome. And the author's purpose here is to extort the... Extort? Nope, not extort. Exhort, not extort. That T is really important to leave out. Our author's purpose here is to exhort the readers in their faith and affirm it based on their past perseverance. And we'll be looking at the dangers of continuing in deliberate sin. We're going to look at how we should remember the faithfulness of God in our past and standing firm in the gospel as the foundation that holds us firmly in place. But first, let's read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment 
and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, when the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross in our place for our sins. Father God, help us understand your word. Help us apply it to our lives. May our trust in you, may it change the way that we live our lives. Help us to take this warning seriously, not to become not to become full of unnecessary anxiety but of clear self-examination and let us take it as an encouragement to persevere in the faith that we claim Jesus let us be real let us be truthful and I pray during this time that I would I would decrease that you would increase that that I would be clear, and if there's anything that's just of me, that you would just clear that out, God. I know my personality is going to color things. That's the way it works. But I just pray that you would make your word clear. Help me explain it clearly and apply it well to our lives. And I pray you'd change me through this, Jesus. And in all things, may you get the glory. May you be lifted high, not me. This is about you, and it's for you, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. So before we get into the first main point for today, I want to point you to the context of this particular passage. This passage appears directly following what we talked about last week on not neglecting to gather together for worship and that exhortation to encourage one another more because the day of the Lord is drawing near. And then... We have this stark warning against apostasy, against a, 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 a really 
falling away. It's really a continuing and deliberate sin, as we'll see. And this passage ends, though, with an urgent call for these believers who he's writing to, to persevere. Remember, he's writing to a group of Jewish believers who have been, they're being pressured, they're being tempted, persecuted into uh, falling back into the old covenant Jewish ways of worship. And he has spent so far, now we've got 10 chapters of him saying, don't do that because Jesus is better. He was the point of all that. Jesus was the point of all that. Why would you go back to something that was lesser instead of the greater thing which you have, which you already have and have available to you? So he starts out talking about continuing in deliberate sin. So that's the first main point that I want to cover. He talks about those who continue in deliberate sin. As you study the book of Hebrews, there are these sections of warning throughout. This is the fourth, and it focuses on the rejection of God's truth and the consequences of that rejection. This is one of those passages that aren't, like, really pleasant to preach about, (laughs) okay? Uh, There's a few of them in Hebrews, which, again, is what I said. It's why we preach, why I preach the way I do. It's why we do expository preaching through books of the Bible, because I don't get a hunt and pick and only pick the easy stuff. Um, we have to cover all of God's word. The person described in these verses is someone who's been around the Christian community and therefore they've heard the gospel. They've heard the truth of the gospel. This person may even be identified by others as a part of the Christian community. Someone from the outside may even look at that person and say, that person's part of the church. That's, that's a Christian. It's part of this, this church. However, Their willful and continued sinning and refusal to repent shows them as having never been genuine believers in the first place. And it's a sobering thing to think that hell is full of people who heard the gospel, maybe even have a clear understanding of the gospel, but have never bowed their knee to Christ the King. This idea of deliberate sin. This carries the idea of going on in sin on purpose. It's deliberate. It's continuing on in it, knowing, yes, this is sin, but I'm going to continue doing it. I can illustrate this. Now, I'm not making a statement about these people's eternal destiny, just so you know. But I once had a couple years ago, okay, not here, just to clarify. Years ago, I had a couple who were... Uh, singing in the praise band or involved in the praise band at church, the worship band. And I found out that they were, they'd moved in together. And I called them in and I said, hey, I've heard this. Is this true? And they said, yes, we know it's wrong, but we're not going to stop. Now, this guy had a medical condition uh, where he wasn't able to live alone or whatever. So that was their justification for it. And I gave them two or three alternatives that could have helped them to not continue in that sin, but to obey the Lord. And they still said no. They were unwilling to make those changes. Now, 
That, I think, is a pretty good example of continuing in deliberate sin. When we talk about deliberate sin, this person never, not the person in my illustration again, just in case somebody heard, heard, that, heard that. Maybe, I don't know, because it wasn't that much longer and they were no longer in the church. But the person in this passage never embraced the gospel in a way that resulted in a changed life. They, they never exhibited a life of faith, of obedience, and the bearing of fruit as the result of embracing the gospel. And this is a great tragedy in this passage. Those, look, friends, there are those who will regularly be around the church, around the body of Christ. They will even see the work of the Lord in people's lives, yet they will never truly believe and become Christ followers. And I've seen those people end up getting put in church leadership as deacons and different church leadership positions in other churches that have other styles of leadership. And then we wonder why the churches are in such bad shape. We'll get to sort of what the answer is to that a little bit later. They've rejected the only possibility for forgiveness of sin and there is therefore no longer any sacrifice for their sins because they've rejected the only thing that could have saved them. And if they never come to repentance, then when they die, they will spend an eternity separated from God in hell. Because that's the truth for all of us is that if we die apart from Christ, we all spend eternity separated from Christ in hell. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, these are common verses for a lot of us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And these, these verses in Hebrews function to call genuine Christians to faith, obedience, and to persevering in that faith. But we look at these warnings and we look at the lives of these people in the warnings and we say, if there is no fruit in their lives, this should be a challenge to them. Like if we look at our lives and we see no fruit of the Spirit, not even a bud of it, it may not be fully grown, but there should be at least a bud of the fruit of the Spirit. And if we look at our lives and we don't see the fruit of the Spirit, we see no fruit in our lives, then this should be a challenge to them to give fearful consideration to whether they are a genuine believer or not. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And friends, testing ourselves isn't just asking, am I in the faith? Sure, that is, that is part of it. But it's also seeing, do we, what we believe and how we live our lives, does the scripture give us that evidence? Does the scripture give us that evidence? It's followed by a description of a person who's deliberately, consciously, and persistently deserted the living God. This person's renounced Christ and the community of faith. 
Again, this is, it's deliberate. It is something that they've done on purpose and are continuing to do. They, they've heard the truth and seen Christians living out the Christian life, and they've shown in their life that they are rejecting it. They're saying that they would rather have their sin than Jesus. Now, this is a serious and deadly offense. Al Mohler writes this about it. The warning against sinning deliberately does not mean that all sin... Sorry, excuse me. There's not a period there. The warning against sinning deliberately does not mean that all sin we commit nullifies Jesus' sacrifice for us. Yes, we do all sin. But the warning against this deliberate sin does not mean that all sin that we commit nullifies Jesus' sacrifice for us, okay? It doesn't mean that going on sinning nullifies what Jesus did on the cross. That's not true, right? Jesus is, uh, excuse me, rather it means that if you continue in sin and definitely refuse to repent, then you essentially reject the gospel and willingly walk the path that leads to destruction. Continually refusing to repent of, of your sin is essentially you rejecting the gospel and the the very thing that would make forgiveness of that sin happen. According to this passage, this person has done three things. You can call these three marks of apostasy, if you're taking notes. Number one, they've trampled underfoot the Son of God, according to this verse, these verses, sorry. In particular, verse 29. They've trampled underfoot the Son of God. This means they reject the identity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The second mark of apostasy, they, according to this verse in 29, they have profaned the blood of the covenant. This means they don't believe that the blood of Christ can purify them from sin. It is to spurn the purification that Jesus' blood accomplishes. And number three, according to verse 29, they have outraged the spirit of God. In the ESV, it says the spirit of grace. They've disparaged the Holy Spirit. Muller explains this as being the equivalent of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which we read about in Matthew 12, 31 through 32, which says this. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. The person described in this passage has insulted God. They've insulted God. This person, who had been identified with the community of faith, has renounced that identification. He's saying he's not on the team. This person's apostasy is evidence that his identification with the Christian community, with the church, was superficial. He was not a true and genuine believer. We see this pretty much running rampant in what modern day is referred to as deconstruction. We see a lot of these people, a lot of kids who were raised in the church and now they're in their 20s and 30s. And they're deconstructing is the term they use. And on the other end, many of them come out basically pagan. Not all of them. This passage should be a means by which the church, 
those truly part of the family of God will be braced and provoked to persevere in faith and in obedience. Now, how? How are we to be provoked and braced for, for faith and obedience? That's what he gets to next by telling us to remember his faithfulness. To remember God's faithfulness. The author goes on to remind the Christians that he's writing to of their perseverance even in their suffering. He's telling them to remember the evidence of faith in their lives displayed through their persevering in suffering. He's saying, hey, remember you when you suffered and you held firm, keep holding firm. Remember that God was faithful even when bad stuff was going on in your life. And he listed their sufferings, Hebrews 10, uh, 33 through 34. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Friends, as Christians, as believers in Christ, followers of Christ in this world, we will face persecution. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like for us, but the further down the timeline we get, I think it's pretty apparent that we will, if we're going to follow Christ the way the Bible says to follow Christ, we will face persecution. And the original audience for the book of Hebrews did as well. Given the endurance of the people, he urges the continuing confidence. And this endurance, the, the goal of it is inheriting the promised salvation. The, the people could look back at what God had done in sustaining them and be encouraged to persevere in their faith till the day when Jesus returns to make all things new. God is faithful to keep his promises. We read elsewhere in Hebrews that it's impossible for God to lie. So when God has said something, like he's going to return for his church, you can take it to the bank. Remember his faithfulness. He will help us endure and stand up under persecution because he is the grantor of faith. And he is the one that works salvation. So remember his faithfulness. And third, stand firm on the gospel. Stand firm on the gospel. How do we, how do we combat a persecution, a pressure to give up on our faith, a pressure to go back into whatever the world wants us to do or to go forward into whatever the world wants us to do? How do we fight that? We stand firm on the gospel. The author goes on to encourage perseverance in the lives of his readers. And he lets them know that the wait for the end will be short. The righteous will live by faith. Faith is what is required from the righteous. It's what's true of the righteous. As those who have perfect standing before God because of the blood of Christ, we are expected to live by faith. Romans 1.17 For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in Galatians 3, 11 through 14, it says, Now it is evident 
that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We who have heard the gospel and trust Jesus must hold to faith in Christ alone for salvation and for the strength to live and persevere. We cooperate in the process of sanctification as we live out the will of God through our study of the word and the other spiritual disciplines. And we must stand firm on the truth of the gospel. So, Where does this all go? How do we sort of bring this plane in for a landing? Wrapping up chapter 10 in Hebrews. Well, I, I asked myself two questions. Number one was, how does this impact individual lives? And number two, how does this impact the life of the church? So how does this impact individual lives? How do you persevere? You remember his faithfulness. And cling to the gospel of grace. And someone might say, well, pastor, so you're just telling me to do more. How do I cling to the gospel of grace? How do I uh, remember his faithfulness in my life? What do you want me to do? Try to muster up a bunch of effort? And try really, really hard? No. It's not about striving harder, but leaning into Jesus more. It's not about striving harder, but leaning into Jesus more. First of all, what do you mean by that? Well, here's the deal. Recognizing, number one, that you can't do it on your own. Part of remembering his faithfulness and clinging to the gospel is recognizing that this perseverance thing, like... If I'm on my own, I'm sunk. If I'm on my own, this isn't going to work. It's got to be Jesus. Recognize that I cannot do it on my own, that, that as a follower in Christ, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who enables us to be obedient to the Lord, enables us in following Jesus. So recognize you cannot do it on your own. This is the message of the gospel, right? That you can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't just clean yourself up. The message is that God is holy and is pure and is just. And he created man because he is a good and wonderful creator. And he put man and woman in the garden and said, eat what you want, but not that one. And guess what? They ate that one. And sin entered the world. And from that point out, from that point out, we all are going to, at our core, we are sinful, have a sin nature. And and given the choice, we will lean automatically towards walking away from God, towards rejecting him because of sin. And so God, because God is holy and just 
and must pour out wrath upon sin, but God is also love. In his sovereignty and his wisdom, he had a plan for fulfilling both, his justice and his love. So he sent Jesus, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, to earth in the flesh, lived a perfect life in our place that we couldn't live, and then died a death on the cross sufficient to pay the price for our sin. As a substitute, in our place he died. And in doing so, as he is dying with our sin on him, he gives us his righteousness, his right standing before God. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as sinful people, he sees us as his righteous kids. And Jesus died, dead. And three days later, arose from the grave, proving that God accepted the sacrifice, that all the stuff Jesus said was true. Because if any of the stuff Jesus said didn't come true, then why would you believe any of it? But everything he said either has already come true or will come true when he returns. That's the gospel. The fact that you can watch another church's sermon, just pick random church online, and maybe not hear that is really scary because of the first part of today's passage. Genuine conversion. Someone genuinely believing the gospel, turning away from their sin, repenting of their sin, and trusting Jesus. Genuine conversion is not easy believism, but it's a genuine, life-altering regeneration. The making of something spiritually dead to be something spiritually alive and is proved through a changed life. And perseverance is us living out that changed life and not backing down. So how does it impact individuals? It impacts individuals when we trust the true gospel and we live out in obedience out of gratefulness for what Jesus has done, the gospel. Okay, so how does this impact churches? Well, it's going to impact churches when individual lives are impacted by it, right, and start living that way. But how does it impact churches? It does in this way. As a church, we have to be careful about who we admit to membership and focus on regenerate church membership, meaning making sure somebody, as best we can tell, you never fully know someone's heart, right? I, don't, I, I can't fully see what's going on in your heart. But as best we can tell, make sure that the people we admit to membership in the church are actually Christians. Yeah? I think the church has responsibility for that. So how does this impact churches? I think being real and considerate about how we focus on regenerate church membership Last week, we heard about how some in the passage had habitually given up on gathering together for worship. And here in the very next passage, we have someone 
who's gone from neglect to out and out rejecting the faith community and the faith itself. So how does this impact churches? When we see someone who has neglected the gathering together, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be holding each other accountable. So when you notice that your friend who you normally see at church hasn't been here, maybe check up on them. I mean, I, it, it, we don't have to make it that, like, maybe call them and say, hey, missed you at church. you be back this week, you know? Now, if they say, well, you know, you can listen to the whole message last week. But how does it impact churches? Well, look, people always complain about slippery slope arguments. So if I say, wow, it's a slippery slope, you start skipping church and pretty soon you find yourself walking completely opposite of the way of the Lord. If you look at history, slippery slope arguments are pretty well undefeated in human history. (laughs) Even though we like to bang on them and say, ah, don't use that slippery slope argument with me. So how do, what do we do? Well, we need to guard against unbelief in our own life. Repent of unbelief in our lives. Stay close to the Lord and to the church. And something real practical, do things that build your affection for Christ. As a church, we, we do things that build our affection for Christ. We preach the word. We sing worship songs. That We pray because we know that God is the only one that can help us. So in your life, do things that build affections for Christ. And the things that steer you away from affection for Christ, maybe don't do those. I know that sounds overly simple. I get it. I understand that. But if we as as a people would do more of those simple things of just like, no, I'm just going to do this and I'm going to focus on Jesus. Uh, we'd see a whole lot of difference in the more complicated things. And we do this not for fear of judgment, but because you see Christ as a great treasure that you would give up anything for. The call of a Christian is a call to come and die. Die to yourself, die to your sin, die to your own desires, and live. To live for Christ, by Christ, and in Christ. He was so intent on this that he came and gave his life for you to experience it. So won't you give your life to him today? Now, I'm going to ask the musicians to go ahead and come forward. I should have done that earlier, but they'd go ahead and come forward and get ready to play. I want to leave you with something that I want to be an encouragement to you today. Because the first half of this message, the first half of this passage is, it's, it's, it's hard. I want to leave with this, you with this as an encouragement. Verse 39, the last verse in our passage today. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Our author takes his last verse here to express his confidence in their initial audience. 
So he was writing these and he's warning them about those who go on in deliberate sin and all this. But here he is expressing his confidence in them, not those in deliberate sin, but in the people he's writing to, and to the church that he's writing to. And he expresses his confidence in them. That though he has said some difficult things to them, he reminds them of their identity and their strength as God's very own people. And he expresses that they will not draw back, but they will persevere, thus proving their allegiance to Christ until the very end. Brothers and sisters, we must press on. The world is not becoming an easier place to follow Christ. I'm outraged with some of the dark sin I see in the culture around us, but we must not give in, for he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. And persevere. Persevere. Cling to Jesus and live. Would you stand and pray with me? I'm going to close this with a word of prayer. And maybe during this time, the Lord has prompted something in your heart. Maybe you uh, have, have recognized some, some indwelling sin you've got in you or some, maybe some habitual sin or maybe you've, um, whatever it is, I just get, I consider him today. Repent of the sin that you've been convicted of and believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus died, yes, even for you even for that, and that there is hope. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word, though sometimes it is very difficult. That you give us hope. You don't leave us without encouragement. And I confess that you are the only one that can make us persevere. As we cling to you, you will hold us fast. Even when I think my strength will fail, when I've got nothing left, you promise us that if we cling to you, you will hold us fast, Jesus. Hold us fast today. Help us take you at your word and trust you in all things, Jesus. For it's in your name I pray. Amen.